This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. This is episode 9 for September 2nd, 2016. Then you begin to wonder. First of all, Mr. Holmes, I think that my employer, Sir Robert, has gone mad. Holmes raised his eyebrows. This is Baker Street, not Harley Street, said he. But why do you say so? Well, sir, when a man does one queer thing, or two queer things, there may be a meaning in it. But when everything he does is queer, then you begin to wonder. That's John Mason, from the adventure of Shoscombe Old Place, very concerned about Sir Robert Norberton, who's been acting very strange lately. Watson describes him as a boxer, an athlete, a plunger on the turf, a lover of fair ladies, and by all account, so far down Queer Street that he may never find his way back again. In looking up the source of the term Queer Street, I found this on Wikipedia. In the British cooking show Two Fat Ladies, during the episode Barristers at Lincoln's Inn, 1998, in season three, Clarissa Dixon Wright tells her sidekick and driver, Jennifer Patterson, during a motorcycle with sidecar jaunt through London, turn into Queer Street, Jennifer, To which Jennifer replies, they probably call it Gay Street now. Clarissa corrects her. No, not that sort of queer. It's because the bankruptcy courts are here. So, yes, being up Queer Street means being in financial difficulties. Can't imagine why no one uses that term anymore. Welcome to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, though not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Beth. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can get in touch with me at comments at thistangledskein.com. I'm also on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Litzy, and Ravelry as Plexipa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Today's tea is a Kara McGee Sherlock fandom blend called The Government and the Inspector. Her description. Cloyingly rich and sweet, but strong and bold enough to do the dirty work, these flavors accentuate and complement each other for a surprisingly solid pairing. An adagio says it is blended with black tea, Assam melody tea, Salem sonata tea, cinnamon bark, ginger root, natural hazelnut flavor, cocoa nibs, natural chocolate flavor, natural cinnamon flavor. I say it's delicious. I add milk and sugar to this one, and it's just so perfect for fall. I can definitely taste the cinnamon and the chocolate in it. The name of the tea is a reference to what might be the second most popular relationship pairing in BBC Sherlock fanfic, Mycroft Lestrade, or Maestrade, or Lacroft if you're feeling particularly French today. Fandom managed to create a significant body of work around this pairing, despite the fact that Mycroft and Lestrade were never even on screen together in the first two seasons of the show, which is kind of impressive. After the two characters actually had an on-screen conversation in Series 3, Bron Midwinter created a blend of vanilla, peach, and Earl Grey Bravo teas called Six Sweet Seconds. I'm going to have to try that in my next order, I think. One of the reviews calls it a perfect dessert tea, which always sounds good to me, although it, like the government and the inspector, is noted as containing a high level of caffeine. So maybe not ideal for evening. very beginning of August, my wife got to celebrate her fandom by going to the Star Trek Con in Las Vegas. 
I took a staycation from work to hang out with our daughter, and I finally introduced her to the comic book shop. A whole shop full of comics. Quite the revelation for a nine-year-old. While she browsed the Teen Titans Go and My Little Pony, I bought what might have been the only copy the shop had of the premier issue of Mycroft Holmes and the Apocalypse Handbook by Karim Abdul-Jabbar, Raymond Obstfeld, Joshua Kassara, Louis Guerrero, and Simon Boland. This is a different Mycroft from the one in the book Abdul-Jabbar wrote with Anna Waterhouse a few years back, but he is more like that Mycroft than any other, really. This is a very young Mycroft, maybe in his late 20s. The comic is set in 1874, and if we take Baring Gold's assignment of 1847 as Mycroft's birth, and why not, that would make him 27 years old here. He's taking classes at Cambridge, but there's a mention of his being a perpetual student and possibly having to actually get a job. He is also sleeping with his philosophy professor's wife, as we quickly discover. This Mycroft would certainly never claim that Sherlock has all the energy of the family. His relationship with Sherlock, as we also quickly discover, is extremely adversarial. One of the things that I had the most trouble accepting was the name-calling between the two of them. Mycroft making crude puns of Sherlock's name is somehow one of the most out-of-character aspects of this portrayal. Apparently, I can handle Mycroft being a drinking, gambling womanizer in a rather steampunk version of Victorian England, but deliberate meanness toward his little brother is a bridge too far. Since this is a comic book, a lot of information obviously comes through the illustrations. Mycroft is a blonde, buff, action hero type in this rendering. It's difficult to imagine how he's going to get from there to the Mycroft we're more familiar with. Sherlock, visually, rather reminds me of Matt Smith's 11th Doctor in Doctor Who. Maybe it's the bow tie. Sherlock isn't on screen, or on page, very long, since after the first half of the issue introduces us to these particular Holmeses, Mycroft is abruptly kidnapped by masked men and carried off to some sort of dungeon, all of which Sherlock is convinced is some sort of trick Mycroft is playing on him. It isn't. The second issue is scheduled for release September 14th, so I am interested to see where this goes. This is the first time I've followed a comic book series in individual issues. I've generally read trade paperback compilations. I am not a fan of the waiting. But if there's one thing Sherlockians know how to do, it's fill the time while waiting. The month of August rather slipped by me, which is why this podcast episode is a tiny bit late. Much of the time was devoted to the fourth annual John H. Watson Society Treasure Hunt, a 100-question test of canonical, well, sometimes extra-canonical, knowledge devised this year by Margie Deck, who lived up to her Twitter handle of Pocky Puzzler. I was part of a team with Brad Kefauver and Rob Nunn, last year's Two Guys Down in Illinois. We did not in the end go with the name Two Guys, a Girl, and a Double Day, not least because we had another team member, Ron Lees. If you listen to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, you might remember he was a guest on the Mental Exaltation Quiz segment, and if you follow the Watson Society site, you know him as Chips, the longtime regular contributor of Chips' Tidbits. We considered and discarded a number of team names, finally submitting our answers as an experience of canon which extends over four players and three separate states. I spent a lot of time poring over my annotated editions, both Klinger and Bering Gould, and my encyclopedia Sherlockiana, both Tracy and Bunsen, the Tracy book is full of excellent information, and I kind of want to just sit down and read it from A to Z. Maybe I'll do that next July in preparation for next year's treasure hunt. Results of the treasure hunt were just posted on the Watson Society site. Our team came in third, with 134 points out of a possible 144, 
just behind the retired beekeepers of Sussex and their 135 points. Uno Studio in Holmes, over in Italy, outpaced us all with an amazing 142. Wow. Michael Ellis of the U.S. was first in the individual competition with 128 points, and Mark Doyle of Australia came in with 105. Those of you who took on this challenge as individuals, my hat is off to you. Spending so much time combing the cannon left me with some interesting things lodged in my brain, I have to admit. Last weekend, the Sherlock Breakfast Club met at the Old King's Head pub in Santa Monica for, well, breakfast, and a couple of Sherlockian challenges. Five people read passages from the canon, and we were to identify which story the bits came from. I was the only one to get all five, and I know for a fact that it was because of all the reviewing of the stories I had been doing. After all, it rather helps to know if a particular named character only appears in one story, and which story that would be. Rather narrows down the choices. I want a copy of Maria Konnikova's Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, which has been on my TBR list for some time. That was followed by a 14-question quiz that ranged from things like figuring out which one of a set of words never appeared in canon to knowing Jeremy Brett's given name. I got seven right, putting me in a three-way tie for first place. There were at least two questions that I second-guessed myself on and ended up wrong. Darn it. We also got to see the prototype of the game Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty's Web, which is currently looking for funding through Kickstarter. It's a collaborative game where three to six people compete against the game itself rather than each other. It looks very, very cool. I've pledged, and if everything goes right, I'll be bringing my copy to 221BCon next year. The next local Sherlockian event is the Curious Collectors of Baker Street's Metal Quiz, which is on the Solitary Cyclist this year. After the quiz, they'll be screening the private life of Sherlock Holmes, so it should be a fun evening all round. Now that it's September, it feels like Sherlock Seattle is coming up very, very soon. I'm going for the very first time. The theme this year is Watson, Washington, and the John H. Watson Society will most definitely have a presence at the con. As sponsors, we're donating several copies of various publications for giveaways. We'll also have a table in the dealer's room where you can browse and buy back issues of the Watsonian, the fiction series, and the monograph series. You can also pick up a Watsonian badge ribbon. I've just ordered a brand new batch to take with me. I will also be on three panels, Mind the Gap, Bridging Traditional and Modern Sherlockian Fandom, Podcasting for Beginners, and A Society for Our Dear Doctor. Mind the Gap takes elements of a couple of panels I was either on or attended at 221BCon. We'll talk about all kinds of Sherlockian societies, offline and on, and how to navigate the challenges that come with the generation gaps that can crop up in a fandom that's lasted over a century and encompasses a wide variety of media. It's all about finding or creating fun and welcoming spaces to be fans together. Podcasting for beginners is pretty much what it says on the tin. I don't know who else is going to be on that panel. A Society for Our Dear Doctor is a panel all about the John H. Watson Society. Several of us will be talking about who we are and what we do and how and why you should join us. Assuming there are still badge ribbons left by the panel on Sunday, you'll be able to get that too. Are you going to Sherlock Seattle this year? Any tips for me? Email comments at thistangledskein.com to get in touch with me, or leave a comment on the show notes. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen me mention Sarah Marr's book, All the Perverse Angels, currently seeking crowdfunding for publication through unbound.com. Full disclosure first. 
Sarah is a good friend of mine and has been for a very long time. She is also a fantastic writer. I do not say this lightly, and I wouldn't say it at all if it weren't true. I've had the great pleasure of reading her book in electronic manuscript, and I honestly forgot while reading it that it was her manuscript and not a book that I could immediately go out and hand to other people to read. I'm really looking forward to being able to hold a hard copy in my hand. This was a book that I think will appeal to fans of Emma Donahue and Sarah Waters, as well as Alexander Cheese, The Queen of the Night. The synopsis is this. Anna, an art curator, leaves the psychiatric wing of a hospital and finds herself in an English village, sharing a rented cottage with her partner. Seeking a refuge from the aftermath of past infidelities, she reconstructs the world around her through the brushstrokes and histories of her favorite artworks. A chance discovery in the cottage's attic leads Anna on a journey back to the late 19th century and the complicated relationships of two young women studying at Oxford University. As Anna's investigations blend with the student's story and the threads of her life intertwine with those of a century earlier, she finds a way to run from the pain of her losses, both old and new. But the past is not all it seems, and Anna's escape routes are taken from her, one by one, until she must face the truth of her present. The two stories, Anna and Emily in the 1980s, and the young women at Oxford a century earlier, unfold in alternating chapters, and the whole thing is just so, so good. The writing is beautiful, with details that bring everything to life. For me, the chapters set in Victorian Oxford especially are fascinating. The book is about love and loss and relationships and stories and art. Order your copy at unbound.com slash all dash the dash perverse dash angels. That'll also be linked in the show notes. There are excerpts from the first two chapters there as well to give you a taste of the excellent writing. far this episode, there's been tea, and there's been Sherlock Holmes, but there hasn't been any yarn at all. That's kind of how my August went, really. It wasn't meant to be that way. The month included both round three of the current Nerdopolis tournament, well, now it's the past Nerdopolis tournament, and the entirety of the Ravelenic games. I was part of Team 221B for Nerdopolis and Team Sherlock for Ravelenix, but I am sad to admit that I completely let both of my teams down. In the month of August, I spun a very tiny amount of yarn, crocheted most of an amigurumi yoda, and knit a teeny tiny mochi mochi mermaid for Little Miss. I didn't even manage to get a picture of the mermaid to enter it into Nerdopolis. It was just not a good crafting month around here. It happens sometimes. September is a break between Nerdopolis tournaments, with the next one beginning in October. Cute Critter War 12 is going on in the meantime, a recurring competition to make armies of cute critters, a term that enjoys an extremely broad definition and encompasses a number of divisions. This time, the theme is gotta craft them all with special badges for anyone making Pokemon-themed critters. The last several years, I've knitted tiny bees for the holiday boutique at Little Mrs. Elementary School, since bees are their mascot, so I'll probably be making a number of those this month anyway. Maybe I'll throw a Pokeball in there for good measure. Last episode, I talked about the interview where Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat stressed that there is no John Locke conspiracy. That is, the idea that they're eventually going to make Sherlock and John a romantic couple on screen in BBC Sherlock. The topic of Holmes and Watson as a couple never seems to get too far out of the discussion these days. I just listened to the Baker Street Babes live and local episode at the New York Public Library, where the inimitable Lindsay Fay was part of a panel discussion on the Holmes canon. 
Towards the end, during the audience question portion, someone had to ask about it. Frankly, my hackles were up from the very phrasing of the question, which seemed to be less of a question than a statement in the first place. Lindsay was, as ever, amazing in her answer, pointing out that any argument about Sherlock Holmes's love life would be equally valid, because there's no canonical evidence relating to the topic. Otto Penzler, also on the panel, followed that up with, by the absence of the evidence, there is evidence, and went on to say, I think it's a common mistake to have two people of the same sex be accused of homosexuality simply because of their closeness as friends, just as it's a mistake to assume a heterosexual relationship if a man and a woman are very close friends. Can we unpack that a bit? Why is homosexuality an accusation and heterosexuality an assumption? Yes, yes, I know, heteronormativity and the presumption of straight until proven otherwise, but people, words matter. Accusation suggests right off the bat that a gay relationship is somehow wrong. Do I sound like I'm taking this personally? That's because I am taking this personally. To read Holmes as queer is to read him as a person like me. And when someone suggests that reading Holmes as queer is somehow an insult or a slur, it's hard not to take that personally. Aside from the theory that he was in love with Irene Adler, despite the canonical statement that he never felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler, Holmes's romantic inclinations are so often seen as the one thing that's off the table for discussion. But to make the case that Holmes was gay, or asexual, or for that matter heterosexual or bisexual, is no more a mistake than to make the argument that he was an Oxonian versus a Cantabrigian. There is an argument that has been given no small amount of ink, and there's no evidence at all that he attended either university. The heart of Sherlockian fandom lies in the drive to explore those empty spaces and contradictions in the canon. Articles and journals and books have been written, and will continue to be written, because people care about Sherlock Holmes and John Watson and want to explore the parts of their lives that hide outside the narrative. Is it any wonder that we, too, want to glimpse the great heart as well as the great brain? Well, that's all I have for this month, so until next time, I bid you goodbye. You've been listening to This Tangled Game, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can reach me by email at comments at thistangledskein.com. I can be found on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Litzy, and Ravelry as Plexipa. That's B as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Reviews or star ratings on iTunes are always appreciated.